Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Hamilton will be seeing $9 million in government cuts this year, affecting many health, child care, and social service programs. The Hamilton and Ontario Chambers of Commerce have released a report which outlines Ontario's advantage in the emerging cannabis industry. Also, a judge is being asked today to approve the sale of three parcels of land, two to Stelco and one to a film studio company. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Hamilton is uh, going to lose, we are told, about $9 million in funding this year uh, because of some of the uh, provincial cuts and changes in policy that have occurred. It's uh, to suggest it's going to be challenging for the city of Hamilton. I think it's probably a massive understatement. Joining us to talk about this and outlining exactly the challenge ahead is uh, Paul Johnson. Paul is the General Manager of Health and Safety Communities for the City of Hamilton. Paul, good morning. How are you doing today? Hi there. Okay, I think we're okay now. Hi, hi Paul. Hey, how are you, Bill? Good, I good. You cut me off because I was a Raptors fan or something. No. Like that. <laughs> good, we're back together. <laughs> yeah, well, the Raptors. Don't even get me started on the Raptors. I know. Well, uh, another segment on it. There was only one guy needed a shower last night because they was the only one that had to put any effort into it. But anyway, I digress. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about this. I mean, we know that every time there's a change of government, invariably there's going to be a change of policy. Uh, I talked to some of the, uh, the councillors who uh, listened to your uh, presentation the other day at, in the, uh, the council chambers, and they're telling me that they had this terrible sense of deja vu that they've been through this before but 15 20 years ago uh so you know we have seen these things happen both federally and provincially in the past and and you're right there are always uh, changes we have uh, you know i think two challenges uh, you know one is to 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 understand what these changes will mean long term to service delivery in the city but the more acute challenge and that's what i was sharing with uh, with uh, our committee yesterday is that some of these changes happen in year and we've already struck our budget and some of the changes are significant in dollar value and so our challenge uh, right now is uh, how do we continue through 2019 while we continue to plan for 2020 and beyond well and and to my point uh, you know when i was, I was that was a reference, obviously, to the Mike Harris downloading that occurred in the 1990s, and uh, that predates your time there with the, the, the city staff at that stage. But here's here's the concern, uh, and I think you just hit the, the nail on the on the head here. The thing that I think a lot of concerns about. I talked to the Guelph mayor about this yesterday. Of course, he's the uh, uh, chairman of the uh, Large Urban Mayors Caucus, and they've written a letter to uh, Queens Park about this. You guys have already done your budgets. You, this is all put to bed, uh, and so uh, this is this is like looking under seat cushions now, trying to find extra money that you're absolutely positively need now. Uh, correct, and you know why we're not raising the alarm in any kind of way to be you know advocates or or, or just be contrarian. The reality is it is it is too much uh, money for us to to figure it out in year. And uh, as you know, uh, the, the staff that we have are deal with with ups and downs in our budgets all the time. Um, but when you get to the stage where it's you know, close to nine million dollars uh, estimated in this uh, in this in this year. Uh, it's just impossible for us to do that in our normal course of of good leadership and management. So we're going to have to look at at other ways. Um, you know, I said clearly yesterday, uh, as of today and tomorrow, and certainly in the coming weeks, there is no change in service delivery. But it uh, becomes harder and harder to figure out how we would have just simply absorbed this. Uh, so we're going to have to look at at all of those options, bring them back in a little bit. But that's the the challenge we have. And then looking forward. The other piece is, is we're really waiting to see what do some of these larger policy shifts mean. 
you know, we have hundreds of people that deliver public health services and paramedic services, and so discussions around regionalization are not only very personal for the staff who deliver the service, but from our standpoint about how we ensure the best uh, services are available for Hamiltonians, uh, we just need to more need more information. And while I understand consultation and conversation is is uh, happening, and that's a good thing. Uh, I think we'd all really like to know a bit more of the detail and what the what people are thinking is going to happen, so that we can start to share those messages as well. Well, and the tone I think is is striking the right chord here too, Paul. I mean, I, I understand some people in council are going to get political about this, but I mean they're politicians, so you expect that. But yeah, the taxi you seem to be taking here is look at you're not s- saying hey, you know the, these evil people at Queens Park. I mean they're the government and they're making policies, uh, and even the large urban mayor's letter that t- is going to to the premier this week. He's Essentially says I, we know you what you can do here. We know that you've got challenges, but maybe too slow. Maybe, maybe it's too fast. Rather, maybe we just need to slow down a little bit and basically, I guess, give cities like Hamilton a chance to kind of, you know, read the tea leaves and see just what needs to be done here. Yeah, absolutely. When you you know you read major shifts uh, in a in a budget that's delivered uh, you know in the second week of April and the changes are retroactive to the first of April. Uh, you start to say, okay, and, and then we realize that we don't even really we don't have our final budget packages yet. They didn't up, they didn't speed up the time frame in getting us our our formal documents. So, this is the the kind of running in place. And I think the other piece is that you know we need to know that it's not across all our programs. Uh, when it comes to housing, we got some very good news. Uh, not only were there no reductions in our in some of our current envelopes, we received some more money to deal with the backlog of of uh, social housing repairs that we need to do. So. Uh, you're quite right. Um, you know, my approach is it's, uh, you know, whenever I'm hit with a challenge that is beyond what we can just manage internally, we have to let the community and council know, and we've done that. We've got to figure out how to uh, to tackle this. But, you know, some of these programs are really critical. And, and the other side of this where we do want to communicate very strongly is, uh, you know, the impact on the community, particularly in our two largest areas, child care and early learning and in public health, would be felt. These are not administrative changes where we have to find a bit more administrative dollars. We're talking about the potential for, you know, six or seven hundred childcare spaces to be impacted by, uh, by reductions in funding. Uh, you know, our affordability plan, which lowered the cost of childcare for uh, 4,000 uh, childcare spaces in this community would be in jeopardy. So these have very real impacts to people. And that's why we want to really work together to try and figure out where we're going. Again, we get it. Policies change. Uh, realities change. But there's very limited resources from a property tax base to, ch- to deal with some of these. I s- shared with somebody yesterday, like the overall dollar figure is not dramatic. The city of Hamilton has an over $2 billion budget. So we are talking about $9 million on that. But think about it from a property tax perspective. That's about 1%. So, you know, that puts it in context that this has real impact on the property taxpayers, and that's why we're concerned. Well, and I guess the the sting here, though, Paul, is that this is affecting frontline services. Uh, you know, there's always going to be an edict in, in government, okay, to try to find efficiencies and, you know, don't be top-heavy with management. I mean, we've heard all of those cliches in the past, and some municipalities do it better than others. But when you start looking at, uh, at child care spaces that are going to be removed now because there's not enough money for it, or, or other things that are happening with Ontario Works, we can get into those. Long-term care, uh, how often are we talking about how essential long-term care is to our health care system? Uh, this, this is, this is going to be tough, and uh, it's tough enough for the city council, but it's going to be tough for the community to, to uh, grapple with this and to absorb this because it, it is going to have a service production impact on, on just about everybody. 
Well, it is. And, and you know, we've always been very, uh, very efficient and effective with the use of resources. We don't budget for large increases in the hope that government will come and, and, and allow us to expand and, and, and bail us out on, on some of our, our abilities to look at continuous improvement. We do that. I mean, all we did in long-term care was hope for about a 1% increase. We've normally received a two, a little more than 2% increase. Long-term care is under extreme pressure. The, the challenges of, of the residents who call our long-term care facilities home uh, are increasing. The amount of care that we need to provide is increasing. And so, uh, you know, this is really the front line of, of uh, services that are critical to the community. And I don't want to see anything done to jeopardize that. And by the same token, you know, we've committed in this city, it's right in our, in our vision statement, uh, that, that we want to be the best place to raise a child and age successfully. Well, uh, we need to make sure that we continue to support early learning and childcare spaces. So it does have that frontline impact. Um, you know, we're going to work hard to, uh, to make sure there isn't a service reduction, and that's not where our starting point will be. But, uh, you know, as I say off the top, and you've, uh, you've reiterated as well, it becomes very difficult to figure out how we will massage this uh, into a, a net zero uh, situation for Hamilton. Yeah, and this is uh, the stuff that affects the most vulnerable, I think, is the one that really, I think, gets people upset about this. Uh, for instance, the addiction services, uh, about 140 people in that program. Uh, we know we have a, a, an addiction problem. We have a fentanyl problem here. We have an opioid crisis in this city. And, uh, well, we have one province wide, but, I mean, the numbers are particularly harsh here in, in the city of Hamilton right now. And you have to wonder when they cut service or money for services like that, just what kind of an impact that's going to have on those people. Yeah, and, and this, uh, you know, comes back really to, uh, in some ways, a process a challenge and a process frustration, uh, perhaps more than the actual decisions themselves. Uh, there's no mistaking the fact that government is going to place and has committed to increasing funding for uh, services like mental health and, and addiction services, and, and that's wonderful. The challenge is that when we lose supports for, for folks who want access to those services before those new programs or enhanced programs are in place, excuse me, I worry about you know, the, the, the transition period and the gap period. So, you know, if these things had been phased in in a little different process, and that's, I think, what a lot of the conversation is, is about how could we work together to perhaps change the timing on some of these so it's, so it's better off. Uh, because if more money is going into health services to deal with mental health and addictions, I'm happy to have a better response and a referral system through Ontario Works to make that happen. I'm not so sure it's about the program, but it is about the people who are in that program and how do we ensure that their care is consistent uh, through this through this process. And then on the public health side, you know, the, the vast impact of public health um, is probably not well known. Uh, Dr. Richardson, our medical officer of health, uh, you know, often says, as many in public health do, that you know, when things are, you know, you, when you know, when you don't hear about public health, that probably means they're doing their job. Because if you are hearing, they're sort of like referees, health, aren't they? Hey, that's right. Uh, when you hear about public health on a daily basis, it probably means our community's in crisis. And and the reality is, it's not just about the inspections of restaurants. Uh, that's you know an important part of it, but it is about you know, uh, our, our consumption and treatment services, uh, places that are on the front lines of dealing with the opioid issue. Uh, it's uh, some of our harm reduction work. It's the work we do with, uh, uh, with families and young families and prenatal work. So we're, we're out there as public health doing a variety of things that keep this community healthy and safe. And all of these things we want to maintain. And the challenge for us will be to do that as these impacts of the funding changes are happening. And, uh, again, you know, throw throw a challenge to my team uh, for next year, and I bet you we could come up with some great solutions. Um, our 
our, our panic a little bit at the moment is that we're trying to do this while the clock is ticking. Well, not only that, but you don't really even have a clear picture as to what's going to be happening. I mean, on the issue of public health, Paul, we <clears throat> uh, we also know that uh, there's another element that this, another shoe that might drop here, because they're talking about amalgamating public health services, uh, and we don't even know with whom at this point, and, and that could have an impact on what's going to happen with service delivery. Well, it will, and, and certainly uh, they are very uh, you know committed to that and, and have said so. Really happy that next week uh, we're going to have our, our one-on-one call with the Ministry of Health uh, to be able to ask some questions and, and hopefully gain a bit more information about um, uh, not only what's happening, but also the time frame. So sometimes I, I, I understand people can't, they, the information isn't available, but I just want to know when it'll be available. And so we'd love to know a critical path. We'd love to know what's happening and have a real discussion about what might be regionalized versus what is going to stay local. Because in things like, um, you know, our paramedic service and things like public health, uh, the more we have a direct uh, relationship locally, the better off we'll be. The needs of Hamiltonians are different than other uh, areas around us. And so a strong, strong presence locally with local control and planning is really, really critically important. Could there be some things that are regionalized? Probably. Uh, you know, I've talked a lot about it, data sharing, things like that should be done regionally. There's no way that we should have 35 different areas that speak differently to each other. But those are some of the pieces behind the scenes at the front lines. Uh, our response to opioid will be different than other places. Our response to uh, the challenges in our community will be different than other places. And uh, we need to make sure that those uh, those local decisions can still be made. One other quick thing, because I think it's essential. And again, this is one of these uh, aspects that's going to have a direct impact on the community here, and that's ambulance service. Uh, some years ago, of course, they downloaded the cost of ambulance services. Subsequent governments have loaded it up. And I think the, the cost of that was a share by the city and and the, the government. Uh, and that's ex- especially per- uh, important to us right now because there, there's a new ambulance supposed to be purchased and 10 new uh, paramedics are supposed to be hired right now. And it looks at this point anyway, Paul, doesn't it, that we're going to have to absorb that in total cost now? So uh, already hired, already on the road. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and the 50% that we normally receive, it looks like in the first year, we'd probably have to absorb that. Our hope is that the overall envelope will increase um, some of these aren't particularly new challenges, but on top of everything else this year, it will be a challenge for us. And then the bigger question is, again, this conversation about regionalization, it's far less defined on the paramedic side of things. But we really <clears throat> feel that a dialogue with the provinces is important because some of their goals are shared goals with our paramedic chief. The ability for us to have um, uh, you know, a different approach to the dispatching of calls, we need that more locally uh, uh, managed and have local input to that, and we could really triage better and deliver better service and more timely service to our to our community. Uh, things like alternative destinations, uh, you know, quite frankly, that bill is in place. The regulations uh, around it just need to be proclaimed, and we can we can start to move on some of these things. So, perhaps some of the problems that they see, which we agree are problems, and the solutions are are within our grasp, and we don't need to to have some some regionalization occur to make that that happen. So we're hopeful that we can have a dialogue about what could happen really quickly, because as you know, with dealing with the code zero issues in in our community, uh, we've been trying a lot of these things and pushing for a lot of these things for quite some time. Well, and that's another one, too. We don't even know what's going to happen with paramedic service, too, because there's some rumors out of Queen's Park right now that they may reorganize that on a, on a, a wider basis, too. So yep. uh, lots of questions, not enough answers yet, Paul. That's how, that meeting that you're going to have with the ministry next week is pretty important. 
It is. Uh, those conversations and the other pieces, you know, we have such a, a great season team in the Healthy and Safe Communities Department. We are at the right tables having the right conversations. Uh, I get it. Uh, you know, we have to raise the, elevate the conversation and the and a bit of the temperature on this in order to make sure that the, our needs are, are known. Um, but we want to keep the dialogue, uh, you know, happening and open. And I know that's what everybody's goal is. You know, as I say this, there are things that, uh, that, that we're happy with and we're moving forward on. There's other things that we're less happy financially with and just want to work through those, uh, through those issues. But we'll keep those conversations happening. Hopefully the next time we talk, uh, a little bit more on the solution side and what's next side, a little less of the uh, just long, long laundry list of uh, things that are keeping me up at night. <laughs> that would be nice. Paul, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. Thanks, Bill. Take Bye-bye. care. Paul Johnson, uh, General Manager of Health and Safety Communities. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, alongside the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, uh, have released a report this week which outlines the province's advantage when it comes to the cannabis industry. I'm not so sure that a lot of us even understand uh, just how big the potential is uh, for this. I mean, we've talked about it, I guess, at street level, about you know where the shop's going to be, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, the bigger picture here uh, looks pretty encouraging. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Bianca Caramento, who is a policy analyst with the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Bianca, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Happy to be here. Let's talk a little bit about uh, about that that big picture for cannabis industry and uh, the uh, the indication from the report, the overview that I read anyway, suggesting that uh, that we've got a, an opportunity here in Ontario to really be a leader in this industry. We certainly do. Um, of the of the thousands of jobs that have come out of the cannabis industry across Canada, the vast majority of them uh, happen to exist in Ontario. So capitalizing on that potential uh, for this market is something that we see as a priority. We tend to, I guess, obviously to look inward, but give us a, a global picture as to where we stand. I mean, this, you know, it's legalized on a national basis right now, but as you say, Ontario seems to be uh, almost the center of the industry as it stands right now. Uh, and, and, and tell us where we stand uh, vis-a-vis some of the other jurisdictions that are also doing this. It just seems to be growing at such a rapid pace here in Ontario. It certainly is. So uh, by the end of 2017, there was about, uh, give or take, 2,400 Canadians that were employed in the cannabis industry, and that shot up to about 10,400 Canadians that have been employed, and like I said, the vast majority are employed in Ontario. There's other jurisdictions, of course, uh, that are also moving to legalize, um, so, of course, everyone knows of Amsterdam. It's been legal in Amsterdam for, for a while. A uh, few jurisdictions in the states, be it Colorado, California, uh, Washington as well. Uh, and we, we're seeing a growing number of states consider it. Uh, that being said, by virtue of our existing first-mover sort of stance uh, as a nation, uh, we're only the second nation to be able to do this uh, in the world. We have an opportunity to sort of build on our expertise and ensure that when other markets come to legalize, uh, we can be ready to export and sell our product around the world. One of the things that I'm noticing, and this is just, I guess it's anecdotal information I'm picking up, but you obviously get a more clear picture at the chamber, is is the industry itself. In other words, the production end of things uh, and how quickly that seems to be growing in the province. Certainly, but uh, in the report, as is mentioned, uh, one of the areas of concern is the rate at which we're getting uh, producers to be licensed through mm. Health Canada. Okay. So, of course, there's... There's safety concerns uh, and ensuring quality, and that's one of the benefits of legalization that we ensure that there's quality and standards in the products that are be sold, being sold to Canadians. That said, if it takes one, two years to be able to get on the market as a licensed producer, uh, it leads to what we're seeing right now with the supply shortage across Canada. 
Well, is, is, is that a government problem? Do they not have staff enough to do this to handle the, the, the applications that might be coming in? Uh, I don't necessarily think it's a staffing issue. So some of the one of the things that we point to in the report is uh, just looking to expedite the process. So there, in many ways, there are areas that they're looking to ensure that with quality and ensuring that two-year lane period isn't necessarily because they're waiting for staff to look at it. Uh, it's different quality checks and health checks that we think are absolutely necessary and important, but can be cut down in terms of how long we need to wait to ensure that those health and quality benefits are there. Um, to ensure that we have the supply that we need. It, it, this, uh, obviously, is there a template available anyplace else? Like I say, we're one of the few jurisdictions uh, that are doing this right now. It's, can we point to someplace else and say, yeah, see, they, they, they know what they're doing. Let's, uh, let's, let's replicate that. Some people will point to places like California, uh, who has a lot more uh, lice producers on the market. That being said, um, Canada really is a unique sort of instance as a developed country who's doing it across the nation. Um, and, of course, we have certain standards and expectations when it comes to quality and safety. So the Ontario um, the Ontario Chamber's sort of perspective is looking to ensure that we're able to balance the two. By no means are we looking to expedite it to the point where we're flying off the shelves and, and anyone gets licensed off the bat. Um, but sort of creating that balance will be really key, and that's what we're looking to do here in Ontario and in Canada. Well, because that's going to address, I guess, one of the, I guess, consistent concerns we've heard uh, since the legalization, Bianca, and that, of course, is, is supply, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's a real issue when it comes to being competitive with the illegal market. So at the end of the day, I would categorize um, how we compete with the illegal market in two sort of categories. I'd say uh, it comes down to access and price. So insofar as the legal market is more expensive than the illegal market. Not many people are going to switch their existing behaviors. Um, and then when it comes to access, if people, if it's inconvenient to be able to access uh, the legal market, people won't. They have existing behaviors. Um, they have their dealer that they can already go to. Uh, so being able to provide a competitive advantage to ensure that both access and price are competitive will be key for the legal market to excel. How can you, and again, we're getting into the marketing end of things, but that's still a very key element here. How do you, how do you wean people off the illegal market and say, no, you're better off to come and do it this way? It's, it's, especially because, let's face it, I think with most consumers, bank, our price is probably one of the most determinant factors. Certainly, certainly. And if you look at it right now, so um, in the illegal market, it's substantially cheaper than, than what's being offered. So, for example, in Ontario, um, if you go on the OCS store, it's give or take about just under 10 bucks a gram uh, at the moment, whereas when it comes to the legal market, it's much lower. It's a couple bucks lower than that. So there is a certain degree of room that people will be willing to spend more, and it usually goes, uh, it, the criteria for what people are willing to spend more usually goes something like this. So whether they perceive the quality to be better, they perceive greater safety, so they can be sure in the fact that if it's Health Canada promoted, that therefore it's safe and you're getting exactly what you think that you're getting. Uh, and also when it comes to better variety. That being said, even with those three factors considered in the legal market, if it's too expensive, at the end of the day, those three things won't matter. So there's limits to how much more people will spend. Deloitte has come out with a report, report suggesting that in Ontario, people are willing to spend about 12% more for those three factors. Um, that said... It's in, addressing uh, the price will yeah. be key. 
And that's interesting. And I guess from a from a marketing standpoint, I guess what the industry probably is going to have to do here is is put the emphasis on quality, uh, because they can't compete price wise yet anyway. And 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 quality obviously has to be a factor involved in that as well. The fact that we know that there are standards that need to be met for the people within this industry. Certainly. That said, I don't think that they can't inherently uh, compete on the price matter. What prevents them from being able to compete uh, on the price matter is really just a, a factor of supply. So in order to ensure that um, they can get regulated and approved as soon as possible, you'll have that competitive advantage where people can, aside from economies of scale that we'll come to see as there are large producers, will also be able to have the market do um, its natural occurring function of with increased supply we'll get will get a lower price. So I think they can. It's just right now without the expedited licensing, it's going to be tough for them to do so. So sort of trying to market themselves as a place of quality, a place of safety, uh, is sort of where they're going right now. I guess you'd have to, as another element of that uh, that strategy, obviously the, the array of products, I suppose, because uh, I know that that's one of the complaints I'm hearing from people that they are attempting to, to stay, or maybe I gravitate, I guess, to, to the legitimate side, the legal side of, of, of this industry now, uh, is, is they say, well, we don't have the same line of products. I mean, you know, these guys have got to catch up. Uh, the, the, the edibles, the, the oils and things of this nature that, that aren't there yet, and uh, uh, that's... I guess, one of the big criticisms about this rollout. Certainly. So the federal government is looking to roll out edibles uh, later on this year, and yeah. the report touches on on exactly what sort of sensible policies can be put in place to ensure that that, that that's done well. Um, so right now, nothing at all is set in stone when it comes to the federal rollout, but Health Canada has sort of promoted uh, and released some of their what they're thinking to be guidelines, but it hasn't been set in stone thus far. One of the issues that we see with the guidelines of how they plan to roll out edibles uh, is that they're not really allowing things like multi-packaging, which will get in the way of the legal market from out-competing the illicit market. So if there's, for example, a limit on the amount of THC in a product, that's fine. But if the overall package uh, is also limited at the same amount as that at the limit for the product, you mean it suggests that we won't be able to have more than one edible per package, uh, which can be an issue not just for price and economy of scale, but just inconvenience to have to buy several of these different packages when instead you should just be able to buy a multi-pack while still respecting the public safety of limiting how much THC per uh, individual edible. Another thing that we're can, that's going to be interesting as we look to allow edibles in the market is the consideration of whether or not we're going to allow things like consumption lounges. So in light of the fact that edibles are not vaped, they're not smoked, it suggests that there's no issue with with consuming them indoors. So whether or not the government is going to consider allowing a consumption lounge, similar to perhaps like a bar where you're ID'd beforehand, is something that we think should be considered. Are, how, where are they getting their information? Is there developing policies like this, Bianca? Is there, is there a, a back and forth here? Or is there a consultation that's ongoing, for, for instance, with the Chamber and, and maybe some other partners? Certainly. And uh, the, the federal government, as well as the Ontario government, has been really good at consulting directly with industry to understand exactly um, where the need lies and where some of the issues and sticking points lie. Uh, and also, so and that can be through open uh, very public consultations, which they have when they when they form their guidelines, but also uh, just in terms of of individual reaching out uh, to industry and our partners, and that includes the chamber. We've been in part of discussions with both federal and provincial 
and in our case at the Hamilton Chamber, municipal counterparts on a number of different issues when it comes to the cannabis industry. It's it's much better to do it that way, to be proactive and say, this is maybe how we should do this, as opposed to reacting to a government policy and say, no, 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 there's a shortcoming here, a shortcoming here. Uh, because the, right. that, and that, that's still going to happen. Sure. Oh, it yeah. will still happen, yeah. Uh, this is, yeah, it's a moving target. I mean, this is not going to be carved in stone, is it? No. No, as no law is, really. There's another element uh, to the report that I, I, I want to spend a couple of minutes on, if I could, too, and that's uh, jobs that are going to be created. Now, uh, I, I, again, I don't, I don't know what image is conjured up in people's minds when we say jobs in, in the cannabis industry, but as I've talked to some of the people that are involved in this industry and have been, especially in the medical marijuana side for, for some time, Bianca, uh, I'm surprised I, uh, about the, the kind of jobs that are. These are not minimum wage jobs for the most part. Most of the, I, Actually, in the production side, they aren't minimum wage jobs. That's certainly true. So we're talking quality jobs that are looking at, on the national average, just under 30 bucks uh, an hour, which is, it's, it's nothing to sniff at. These are excellent, well-paying jobs uh, that will contribute to our overall economy. And some people have estimated around 150,000 cannabis-related jobs are expected to emerge thanks to legalization. So this is, this is a huge industry that offers good-paying, middle-class jobs to Canadians, um, and that's that's hard to pass up. Well, I mean, I've had discussions with people in other communities right now, and they're very, very impressed uh, uh, about the kinds of jobs and the quality of jobs uh, that are being uh, offered now as a result of this. And that's that's only going to get better, I guess, as more of these operations do get licensed. Certainly. And, and one of the, the things that we point to in the report is that in order to fill those jobs, there needs to be a concerted effort to ensure that there's a wide variety, diverse an existing talent pool, and that's not necessarily what we have at the moment. So in light of the fact that really the recreational side of things only became legal very recently, we don't necessarily have existing training uh, programs at schools, at universities, at colleges to ensure that the talent pool that's entering these cannabis industry jobs are properly trained. So ensuring that we have that talent pool by getting the governments to ensure that there are different programs at our post-secondary institutions is something that we see as essential to ensure that we can capitalize off the potential for jobs. Uh, this is something you guys at the Chamber have been talking about for years, though, isn't it, about the uh, the in- interrelationships between just about every facet of this, the industry, the uh, the educational side of things as well. And, and I know that the industry ha- has always looked for that, and they're saying, where's the talent pool going to come from? Uh, and the Chamber's been instrumental, I know, for in a number of years now in, in coordinating that and, and, you know, having discussions with places like community colleges and universities and saying, look, this is where the jobs of tomorrow are going to be. We need you to develop programs to train these people. Certainly. And it can be difficult to sort of gain that balance between government, generally speaking, it can be very difficult in terms of the time that it takes to ramp up to ensure that they have the programs and picking and choosing what they think will be the jobs of tomorrow. That can be very difficult to do. Um, So through the chamber network and working with different institutions for education, we can try and be a little more nimble when it comes to suggesting and and demonstrating where the need is, and also recognizing that perhaps, though it's of course important to ensure that that the youth of of today and the adults of tomorrow are trained in what we think is going to be a big industry, um, looking at things like retraining and getting people to shift their potential focus to areas that are in need right now is also something that allows you to have a more nimble and quick response to the trends that we're seeing. 
Well, that puts us in pretty good stead, though, doesn't it? I mean, you know, we talk about what's happening here locally, and we're fortunate here to have Mohawk College, which is, last time I checked, which was just a few months ago, still the number one skilled trade and, and retraining uh, community college in the province of Ontario. So, I mean, this this seems like a natural fit for, for what you're asking uh, education and those these sorts of facilities to do, because these guys have been, been pretty open-minded and pretty proactive about doing these sorts of things. Absolutely, and I would love to see for Mohawk College to uh, include a program that looks at whether it's the agricultural side of things, the the advertising side of things, the marketing, the sales, all of that is absolutely key to the industry, and those are skills that we need, and I would love to see a specific program at at Mohawk that addresses those skills, because as far as the Chamber is concerned, and and Keenan, our president, has said this time and time again, in our view, cannabis has the opportunity to be to Hamilton what the grape is to the Niagara region. Mm -hmm. We already have producers here. We have, thanks partly to some of the advocacy on behalf of the chamber, we've ensured that retail's here. So we're looking at vertical integration from seed to production to sales. Um, and by capitalizing on that fact and making sure that we have a local talent pool to feed that growing industry, is that would be ideal. Well, not only do we have a couple of those uh, operations here already, they're both in expansion mode, which tells you something about the future, doesn't it? It certainly does. And uh, I think next step aside from uh, the industry side of things, is also to ensure that in light of the fact that we have a um, a very clear demand in the region, to ensure that we're filling that demand uh, by making sure that not just the industry and supply side is doing well in Hamilton, but also on the retail side of things. Um, So a couple months ago, the provincial government, upon releasing their licensing allotments, they allowed the Hamilton region to have about six retail uh, cannabis stores, whereas prior to legalization, we had about, I think the count was around 50 illicit dispensaries in Hamilton. At least, yeah. So if, we, so if we went from 50 to 6, that suggests that the market and the demand is not necessarily being met by the legal shops. Um, so that disparity needs to be addressed by ensuring that we expedite the process of new licensed shops so that, like I mentioned, access is everything. So if it's inconvenient for people to access the legal market, they'll continue with the illicit market. So ensuring that we meet that demand that we know exists in Hamilton, we're not assuming that it exists, will be very important. Well, you know from your years in the business, governments move at glacial speed, Uh, you know, always baby steps. And uh, it's obviously it's organizations like the Chamber that are going to be the encouragement to say, look, we can do better, let's just ramp this up a little bit. So I think this this report that you've uh, talked about and worked on here is actually going to be a catalyst for that. Thank you so much for the time today. It's great talking with you great talking with you. Thank you very much. Take care. That's uh, Bianca Caramanto, who's a policy analyst with the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. Cannabis industry is alive and well and growing, and uh, Hamilton could well be right in the hub of this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, a judge in Toronto is going to be asked uh, today to approve the sale of three parcels of land down in the north end of the city. Uh, two would be returned to Stelco, and the, uh, the other actually could become the site of a film studio company. We don't know a whole lot about that yet, and not even sure about the ramifications of the sale. Uh, to get some clarity on this, we are pleased to welcome back to the program the counselor for uh, Ward 2 downtown in the North End. Uh, that would be uh, one Jason Farr, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Jay, how are you doing today? Very good, Bill. How are you? Excellent, excellent. Maybe let's backtrack a little bit and talk about how we got to this place right now, uh, because there's some intrigue, some uh, some skullduggery, perhaps. Uh, this was all part of the, the Stelco CCAA and, and the fact that you know, the company was trying to get back on its feet. 
Uh, this land, I guess at one point, uh, was going to probably be ceded to the city, and then Stelco kind of changed their minds. And I, I know there were some uh, rather concerned people down around city council when they did that, but it looks like everybody may be okay on this. Yeah, I'm uh, going glass half full all the way on this one because uh, ultimately, uh, and as a proud member of the Steel Committee, those early discussions, even before the land trust was established with the previous Ontario government, uh, Bill, we were uh, concerned first and foremost for pensioners. And so when we see this update uh, today, uh, where we see a large uh, swath of industrial land back in the hands of what is a successful company, I caught your Marvin Ryder interview uh, not too long ago on mm-hmm. that, uh, and we can uh, safely uh, see a number that's close, closing in on $20 million for those pensioners, whether it's a land trust or bedrock or, or you know, the Flintstones. I, I, as long as uh, that was covered, that was a key priority for a lot of us on the uh, steel committee. Uh, so, yeah, and then, and then obviously uh, a lot of us were surprised the mayor hasn't uh, pulled any punches, uh, especially at the time. I think he's uh, sedated on this particular argument now a little bit as well, but I completely understood he and others on council having concern when we learned that the land trust was disbanded, that Bedrock was just going to not lease but take over that property and do their own thing. Ultimately, even then, I was kind of trying to be uh, glass half full myself personally, thinking, well, if it, if it creates employment and, again, covers these uh, pensioners' concerns that we had for about a year or two there, that, uh, you know, for all those years of, of work, uh, both union and non-unionized, to not uh, to contemplate and have that insecurity for that period of time in our city. That was, that was a bit distressing. It was distressing for me. I can't imagine for the pensioners. Well, and that was one of the key issues. I mean, I, I talked, obviously, to Gary Howe from 1005 and Bill Ferguson yep. from Lake Erie numerous times while that was all going on. And and the pension fund was one of the key issues for them because, obviously, they were afraid that uh, that if this thing fell apart, and it came pretty close to doing that, uh, that these guys were going to be left out in the cold with nothing or very little in, in, anyway. Uh, and that's maybe the added benefit. I'm glad you brought that up today because if this sale is approved and, uh, and the sources I've talked to said it probably is going to be, uh, the total m- amount of money that's going to come out of this is $24 million. That goes to the pension fund, right? Yeah, I mean, and that's fantastic. That That's peace of mind. There's people that have spent decades working in, in Selco and, and Bedrock and U.S. Steel for a spell. And, and the reality is, I mean, when you put that kind of time and commitment in, right from day one, you know what you're paying into your pension plan. You know what benefits you have. And when, when in all one fell swoop that's taken away, I mean, there's a reason why there's uh, continued debate about this. Scott Duvall doing a pretty good job, I think, with the Steel Committee federally uh, on, on moving forward in the future in this nation, let alone our city. Protecting pensioners first is, is clearly a, a major argument and one you've talked about many times as well. But, you know, even back then on the Steel Committee, and this was last term, the Steel Committee hasn't uh, reformed yet, but we will soon uh, this term of council. If you would have told me Ward 2 had factored into this uh, arrangement, I, I would have said, suggested, well, how's that going to work out? But uh, clearly what we're hearing today is uh, there's a parcel here that in, in a very big way uh, plays into what we've been talking about, you and I and, and the community, uh, in the last couple of months. And that's the very real potential of a major Hamilton Film Studio in the Barton Tiffany lands. And the portion that's that's uh, part of these this Stelco deal, this expected judge's decision to sell these parcels today, uh, a couple of acres there are in Ward 2 and adjacent to, meaning adjoining the already city-owned uh, Barton Tiffany lands, which makes, obviously, this uh, film production uh, uh, and television studio production 
uh, opportunity all that bigger as far as footprints go. Well, and and it ties in nicely with uh, I think the, the city's stated goal, and because I, t- I talked to back in the day when Stelco decided they they were going to buy this stuff, and and I know that you're right, the mayor was pretty upset about it, and I had him on the show, but the reason for the upset was. <laughs> Not that there was any cash involved, but I mean, they had plans for for developing that, and they were looking at increasing the tax base, economic development opportunities on that land, and and right. that's that's now Stelco may still do some of that, but I mean, that may not be a direct benefit. But with this third parcel of land that you've just described in your backyard, there, uh, yeah. there's a possibility for that to happen. Maybe not on the same scale that that you had hoped for before this, but it's there. And and uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about that because I think a lot of people are, are pretty fuzzy about exactly what you see. Film studio, what does that mean? You know, what's, uh, is, how grand a scale? What are they going to be doing there? I know, I know that, that you can't share an awful lot of the details until the deal is finally consummated, but what can you tell us about this? Well, clearly there's interest. Clearly, I think we can say publicly we've uh, we heard from a number of different uh, film companies over the last few years. We've narrowed that down. There's one uh, uh, proponent who is... Uh, uh, very much moved the yardsticks on this uh, plan. Uh, that that proponent is obviously uh, the one who's uh, going to be part of this judge's decision for purchase uh, there next to Barton in Barton Tiffany on the former Selco lands. Uh, there's a lot of movement over the course of the last five six weeks, uh, both by this these this consortia, I will say, uh, this proponent, this this narrowed down one uh, company. Uh, but also by council, Bill. I mean, we, we had uh, amended some zoning uh, probably about three, four weeks ago now. Uh, the uh, amendment uh, particularly affected the commercial side of Barton Tiffany and this uh, December 27th, 2012 OMB approval. So the zoning was in place. We just amended it for the film and television production studio use, and that went out uh Oh, let's say three weeks, four week, four four weeks ago, and went unanimously at council. So council's done its part in terms of amending the zoning to make uh, this a reality. And the reality is, and and it's a very good point. I mean, like I say, years ago on the steel committee, I wouldn't have thought Ward Two would have a role here, and we were thinking about uh, uh, when the land trust came about, you know, uh, get optimizing those lands in Ward Three and Four that are going to be available uh, for good, well-paying jobs. And uh, that that being zoned accordingly was uh, going to hopefully go off without a hitch. Well, here we go now uh, with uh, that still very much. We don't know how many or what Stelco is, is essentially going to end up doing. Are they going to uh, start the blast furnaces up again, which would be great because there's more well-paying jobs. And, and the lands they're going to lease, who are they going to lease them to? Are they going to be good-paying jobs? We'd like to think they would in an industrial core. But now you've got the potential here in Ward 2 uh, by the waterfront, by the shunting yard, for upwards 1,000, maybe 1,500, mostly well-paying jobs. So add that to the mix, and essentially those things we were envisioning and planning for and moving motions for as a council are all starting to come to fruition. And today is a very big day. Today it's no longer talk. It's uh, reality when the judge uh, makes the decision uh, who, that we're expecting uh, the judge is going to make, and that's to allow these sales to go. All right, so let's let's do the glasses half full thing, as as you mentioned a couple of minutes sure. ago, and say everything gets done, uh, all the t- t- I's get dotted, the T's get crossed, deals deal, money is exchanged, uh, and these guys come along and say, okay, now we want to develop here. Tell me what this is going to do to to that area, because that's as you mentioned, it's adjacent to a piece of land that you already own. Not going down the road of what was proposed to be built there. That's that's gone. That's forget about that. 
but but it's sitting there right now, and a lot of people, not just in that neighborhood, but across the city, are saying, "Well, what are you going to do with that? Uh, you're close to the waterfront. You're close to the rail tra- to the to the trail there, the waterfront trail. Uh, you got big plans for just a few blocks away from there, going out on Pier Seven and Eight. So, how do you see this working in the, the grander scheme now to, to 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 redevelop that area? Well, I won't linger on it, but first and foremost, we're going to bring uh, thousands of fifteen hundred uh, jobs to the area in fairly short order once once the build-out occurs, if and when a, a film and production studio happens, and that's clearly where we're leaning, Bill. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, 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 you're going to have a very uh, open, welcoming, um, uh, really top-notch urban design focus on both the commercial and the residential piece. The residential piece could accommodate upwards 1,500 new units uh, along the Barton Street stretch of Barton and Tiffany, and back would be... Uh, the uh, uh, the well-designed film studios, because we didn't amend uh, those parts of uh, uh, the zoning uh, that is currently in place. We, we would, uh, through site plan, through working with a proponent, if it is a film and television studio production uh, area, then, then all of those pieces will be adhered to. So in, 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 you know, in talking to the proponents myself, is very much an interest in maintaining that urban design and incorporating, you know, public spaces and uh, welcoming the public. Now, obviously, the doors aren't going to be open 24-7 when a major production is, is uh, happening in one of the production facilities, but there are ancillary uses, uh, and I'm growing more and more in my understanding of how film and production, film and TV production works. Uh, there, there's opportunities. We're hopeful. We certainly have had those conversations to bring our local creative uh, community into the mix, providing uh, space, whether it's uh, affordable housing for, for artists or people in arts and culture in our community, perhaps more directly associated to film and television production. Uh, there's already in the OMB approval, the one thing uh, that uh, the appellants over many years uh, fighting the city in the OMB on the whole setting sales secondary plan did win. The one, the one thing that they came out of, uh, as I, I, that I think they could safely call a win, was this five-meter-wide uh, multi-use trail. And that will, in, some, in, in a capacity we don't know exactly where yet, uh, sift through, meander through this film and production studio. So, I mean, if ever there is um, an example of, hey, public welcome, this is, this is for Hamiltonians to enjoy, uh, as much as it is, as a place to employ, uh, uh, you know, 1,000 to 1,500 people working in this industry. That, that's a, a perfect example, and I think that's going to be part of a, what is going to be a, a spectacular design. So th- it means a, a lot of great things. It's great for, you know, the commercial uses and the restaurants and the, and the industries and the, and the, and the res- residential in the immediate area, but also our downtown. I mean, if you have that many more people coming in on a daily basis, of course, they're going to buy groceries, they're going to use the bank, they're going to eat, they're going to use the gym. So, so there's nothing, there's, I can't see a downside of bringing those, that many people, and I shouldn't even say Monday to Friday, because this would be a 24-7, seven days a week facility, if it is as popular as facilities are right now in this particular industry. And you and I have talked before, it's a burgeoning industry. It's uh, something a lot of people are interested in getting involved in, because you, you know, it's not just Netflix anymore, Bill. There's Crave, there's there's Bell, there's uh, a Disney now getting into the mix. You've talked about it on Fridays with uh, Adam. Yep. Uh, and, and it's a huge industry right now, and everybody's trying to produce their own content. So there's no shortage 
of customers for an industry like this, and that can only mean great things for, for Ward 2 in downtown Hamilton. Well, because we already know that, I mean, you guys have established yourself within this industry, but obviously the stuff that comes in here now are all on-site, uh, you know, uh, productions, you know, they, they yeah. like Lock Street, they, well, there's a lot of yeah. areas, and uh, what's that, the Umbrella Factory, I think, it was, it was done here in Hamilton, too, so you can see yeah. those landmarks, but this sounds as if now you're going to have an anchor for it, for not just those on-site productions, but also to do studio productions here. Absolutely, and 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 uh, you know we we have done very well, particularly in the last four or five years with those location shoots, as you you say. And uh, you know the word is out; the industry knows Hamilton's a great place to film. It's uh, easy to get to. It's great to stay at. Uh, we have uh, wonderful, uh, helpful industries that are, are directly associated to those lo- locational shots. Uh, and and you know it isn't going to be hard to find people already in this city working in this industry to do the uh, go from location to uh, you know the actual uh, production piece. Uh, so so there's a lot of synergies, let's say, and there's a lot of interest. I think because we're already well known in terms of uh, film location shooting. I want to go back from uh, the days when you were work on that steel committee and you were having those discussions with uh, the unions and uh, obviously with other folks that were uh, all stakeholders in that whole situation. I think in hindsight, Jay, I mean, let's face it, I think a lot of us were preparing for the worst, uh, thinking yeah. that, you know, it's pretty dark and not so sure what's going to happen here. And, and look at how things have evolved and turned around. Stelco now says that they're in expansion mood. Obviously, they want this land, but now they're looking for to buy out other steel companies. We talked about that on the show yesterday. Uh, you're going to get this parcel of land. This could be a huge economic driver for you. Uh, you got federal money just a little while ago to fix up that uh, waterfront trail that we were talking about that was damaged by, by by some of the waters and some of the storms that we've had. So Good this point. this this is going to have a, a, an outstanding uh, impact on that particular area. I guess about the only regret here is the shunting yards, which uh, how many years now? 25 years the city's been trying to get some action on that. That seems to be about the only stumbling block. Everything else seems to be falling into place. Yeah, it came close. Depending on the genre, it might make for a great backdrop of some of those productions. But yeah. the reality is, uh, it, it you know the, the the folks that I've talked to that are involved with this court consortia that's interested, uh, which is shortlisted. The one as I mentioned, uh, don't see any issues in terms of noise and as far as visuals. When uh, sky's the limit, and depending on on what they're filming, it may end up be playing a role. But uh, yeah, I think Bill, as you know, the closest we ever came was. Uh, uh, the rail yard's intention to move to Aldershot, and then the residents went crazy there in Burlington yeah. and yeah. said, you're not putting a shunning yard in our backyard. And uh, since, it's been very hard just to just to get at the table to discuss a relocation. And, you know, uh, full circle on our conversation here, you know, don't, don't uh, think it wasn't lost on us that if we were going to acquire the massive amount of acreage that we're talking about uh, next to Stelco in on our industrial strip, that we weren't, some of us, sort of contemplating that's a good spot to move the shunting yard in Ward 2 to. Uh, it, well, it, it happened. Let's just say that. And uh, obviously it won't be happening now with Stoko having control of those lands. But when the land trust discussions were going on, that certainly was a possibility to just move the shunting yard down the road to where we thought it was more, some of us thought anyway, was a more appropriate spot right in the heart of the industrial district. Well, it's uh, coming together. I guess we're just waiting for the court decision from Toronto right now, and hopefully that'll be the the start of this whole process. Uh, Jay, thanks as always. Appreciate you spending some time with us today. Have a great weekend, Bill. You too. That's uh, Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr. Uh, And again, as soon as we get the details about what's going to happen in uh, Toronto with the court sale, uh, we'll pass that on to you here on CHML News. But uh, it looks as if, uh, from what we've been told, 
uh, that this is really a, a done deal and uh, that the judge will rule in favor. Stelco will be happy. The city will clearly be happy. And the Stelco pensioners are going to be happy because they're the ones that are going to uh, benefit from this uh, as well because of the money that's uh, going to be changing hands. It's going to go to the pension fund. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.